Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, your all things recovery podcast. Recovery Uncovered is produced by MHAB Enterprises, a division of the Northeast Group of Companies located right here in Plattsburgh, New York. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter. Affectionately known as MHAB Mike. And I'm your co-host, Betsy Vicencio. Affectionately known as BV the Normie. We have one goal in these podcasts, and that's not to suck. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, podcast number 14. I'm your host, Mike Carpenter, affectionately known as MHAB Mike. You can see that we fired my sidekick, Betsy Vicenzio. She will not be returning. That's not true. She'll come back at some point. She's in sunny Aruba for two weeks. So you're stuck with me doing this all by myself. And in fact, our guest today asked where Betsy was, and I think he's disappointed that it's not, it's only going to be me and not Betsy, but we'll, we'll have a good time. So, uh, yeah, this is our 14th episode. That's, that's really cool. And this is much more difficult for me without Betsy to kind of prompt me into the things that we're going to say. But I will tell you before we get started, and I introduce my guests, you know, I was researching some numbers today and we mentioned last at the last podcast that COVID's over, we're beyond it, we're not using COVID out anymore. And, you know, now we're back to what I consider the real pandemic that's been going on for the last 30 or 40 years, which is the scourge of death from alcoholism and drug addiction and poverty and all of those things. Bryn, do you need to get your oh, phone sorry. this morning? That's, that's, it's that's, all part of the excitement. That's awesome, Bryn. By the way, before we get started today, next week's podcast will be a behind-the-scenes look at Bryn Judkins and Telly Schwartz, who are going to be on this side of the camera. So, Ooh, it should be, so it should be a lot of fun. So, yes, I was looking at the numbers and, you know, the numbers of people still dying from overdose deaths and alcoholism and, and those things uh, continue to rise. So I'm glad we'll get back to focusing on that. And so uh, we'll launch right into this and go with our guest. Our guest today is a gentleman that I met many years ago, and I credit him with being one of the guys who dragged me out of the shadows and put me in somewhat of the public eye. And I, I thank you and curse you for that all at, the, <laughs> all at the same time, because there are days when I really like it and days when I wish I was left alone. But um, John Bernardi is the executive director of the United Way of Clinton County or North Country Region. Did I Adirondack Region. Thank you, Adirondack. President and CEO. <laughs> close enough. All right. Let's start <laughs> over. John Bernardi is the president and CEO of the Adirondack Region of We're the United friends. Way. We're good friends. We're good friends. He knows all about it. Among, <laughs> amongst other things. I was just going to say John Bernardi is the best skier in the North Country. <laughs> that would probably be the most appropriate introduction for you. Um, the president and CEO of the United Way, which in my opinion, and I think many people's opinion, is the uh, premier nonprofit help people organization Thank in, you for in that. this part of the country and, and probably all over the country. And, you know, the uniqueness about you guys, and, and I'll talk a little about our company and what we do, the uniqueness is you give to so many different organizations. You are like the umbrella that helps all of the smaller organizations be able to function. Um, so we're going to, so welcome. Thank, thank thanks for coming. And thanks for not putting on a tie. No, I'm, I'm going casual yeah. today. Billy Jones, the only one who came here and put on a tie. Of course I'm he like, did. Really, Billy? You would expect nothing yeah, less. Suit and a tie. Yeah. I'm like, he's, you know, he's so clean cut. Yeah. So uh, 
Yes, and I'm sorry Betsy's not here. I know she's one of your favorites, too. So we'll have to have you back in a year or two and talk with Betsy. Sure. So um, let's launch right into it. So you've been the president and CEO of the United Way for a, for a long time. Tell yeah, me. just about 15 years. So following the... But I've been in the human service field my whole life. It's all I've ever done. So 35 or 36 years, um, various capacities in the mental health field and counseling didn't you field. run a kids group? A kids I was the Head Start director right. in, in, in Essex County. Prior to that, I was at, at what used to be the Camelot Boys Home in Lake Placid, which is now Mountain Lake Academy, Yep. working in a residential treatment facility. And, and then I went on to be the Head Start director, then the CEO at ACAP, the Community Action Agency in Essex County, and various other places. And landed at United Way of the Adirondack region, which was Clinton County at the time. Right. Then we added Essex County. Then we added Franklin County and became a regional organization. 15 years 15 ago? 15 years. That's you Did you think that that was when you were younger? That was where you'd wind up when you were no, getting old? No, never, never, never in my wildest dreams. I was having lunch one day with my old friend Mike Mannix, who yeah. you'll remember because yeah, he was a dear friend of your dad's. Herb and Mike were. Yep, very Best close. buddies. Yeah. And uh, Mike and I became good friends when I was at ACAP. We were one of the partner agencies of the United Way at the time. Mike was the CEO, exec at the time. Um, and we became very friendly. And we were having lunch one day in Elizabethtown, and he said, John, I'm going to retire. And I said, Mike, I'm sorry to hear that. that that's going to be a great loss for the human service network across the region. He said, yeah, I'm ready to go. He said, I think you should throw your hat in the ring. And I said, you know, I appreciate that. I'm very happy with what I'm doing. I, and I was at ACAP and I was very happy. Yeah. Um, and he said, well, just give it some thought. And I did. And I threw my hat in the ring and ended up there. Um, so, you know, it was, it was uh, not something I had ever imagined or planned to do. You walked into a position with incredibly tough shoes to fill. I mm -hmm. think a lot of people, even in the beginning, were like, all right, who's this clown Bernardi, right, and right. how's he going to fill in for, you know, it's all true. this guy wants to do is ski and drink cognac up at the mountain. It's He's true. Not, you know, how's he going to fill in for this icon of the true. world? But I think in short order, most of us in this community recognize that you're not going to replace him like Mannix, but we did a pretty good job here getting somebody who could, who could, fill the role and take it in a new, you know, you, it's almost funny, John, yours is, Mike wasn't your father, but it's not dissimilar than mine with my father. Like yeah. I, you know, stepped into this business, like how am I going to follow in Herb Carpenter's right, shoes? Right. And, and I, it took me a while, but I kind of carved my own way yeah. and have found my own, you know, things to do. And I think yours is somewhat similar. It is. Um, and it was new. That whole process was new to me because prior to that, I had stepped in to fix everything yep. um, and you know places I had gone to work prior to that were places that had experienced various difficulties and yep. so I was expected to fix it and make it better and this was very different when I stepped in here instead of you fix this place and make it better and we're counting on you. Don't change a damn thing. Well <laughs> not that as much as don't screw it up <laughs> um, right. and it took me years. Uh, but you know it was okay because he was a he was someone I respected yeah. and admired a great deal. We had a very friendly, close relationship. So when people held me to Mike's standard, it was okay. If I didn't really love the guy, yeah. 
then it might have been more difficult, but he was just top of the line, that guy. So it was okay that I was following him and, you and know, it pushed me. It's funny, when, when I took over for the business from my father, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for me. And somebody once said to me, I don't, I don't think it was you, although you've given me tons of good advice over the years, but I think it was somebody else who said, rather than being upset that your father's this you know, powerful icon in the community, why don't you embrace that? Become your own person, but use not don't use your father, but remember that that's a benefit to you. That's a it's it really can help you. And and when I started looking at it differently like that, that's when I think I started to flourish on my yeah. own, as opposed to you know being in his shadows. So. Well, for me, what absolutely, and and for me, a turning point was many years ago. Um, I I still call around Christmas time. I call Mike's widow yeah. Judy Mannix every year we're not I don't barely know her right but I always did right from the yeah. get-go when Mike died by the way Mike died a year after he retired right I started in December of 06 and Mike was supposed to stay on for a, f a couple months yeah during the transition but three days into it he he said you need me to hang around here I said you know what Mike I don't go enjoy your retirement yeah. I know where to find you so um, he went about his retirement and then died less than a year after he retired. It was tragic. It's so sad. Um, but I um, kept in touch with Judy, who I don't know well, mm -hmm. but I called her, and I call her every year around Christmas time just to say hello, and she's a donor, and she's great. And several years ago, she said to me, you know what, John? Mike would be immensely proud of what you have done mm -hmm. with that organization. And I said, that's it. It's all I needed to know. Right. It's all I needed to hear yeah. from, from that point on. You know, it's it's that's one of those little stories that probably doesn't get a lot of public recognition. Maybe a lot of people don't know about it. But that's what that's the the character of people like you or or people in this community. You know, one of the things you always have talked about over the years that I've known you is we're lucky in this community. We have a, a tremendous amount of people with you know high character who work together and we have our differences and we fight and we argue you know that happens but sure. by and large this community really jumps yeah. in together yeah. whenever somebody needs something yeah. it really is and you've been a proponent of pushing that from the day that I met you it's, it's I really believe that. that's our greatest asset yeah. because like any region we have our set of challenges yeah. as you just mentioned, and, and uh, those will continue. But one of the things we do really well in this region is collaborate, cooperate, mm. partner, and support each other. There's very little territoriality. And you see this in other regions. I see it all the time or hear about it yeah. from my colleagues across the state and mm. other nonprofits especially, where they're very territorial around what their role is, what their territory is, what their focus is, and, and they don't play as well in the sandbox <laughs> as right. we do. And, and uh, we're great. You know, MHAB's a good example of that. When you had this idea and this, to meet this need in the community, and you started to reach out to people to get their input, me included, I was proud to be part of that yeah. conversation early on. People rallied around the idea, and, and um, you were able to pull all those partners together in short order. Yeah. And that wouldn't happen everywhere. There right. would be a whole conflictual process that yeah. you would have needed to go through in other areas. Yeah, I think we had over 30 
and I never had any of them say no or let me think about right. this. Everybody was like, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. It's needed. How can we help? What is it you need from us? What we do? So you're right. It's always, and we've done the same thing. If people have called me and said, yeah, I'm in. Sure. What do you need? I know, you know, my wife obviously is in housing and works for BHSN. And when they were getting ready to think about the Northwoods project, I think we, along with you and a whole bunch of other people, wrote them letters of support every year until they got it approved. She never struggled with getting people to, right. you know, sign on and say right. we're in. So you're right. We have a tremendous amount of uh, respect for each other, even in the private business community. You know, we're pretty big in the warehouse business. We all the people who run warehouses around here are friends of mine on some mm -hmm. level, and we're you know you have trade secrets, you're going to keep that, but we're friendly competitors. Like it's right. not we're not viciously trying to put each other out of business. We're not. It's it's like we're what can we do to help this area? You right. know, wherever we can grow and bring more people and more resources, I think is is great for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. So tell me about the United Way. What is what does the United Way actually do? Well, we're a comprehensive nonprofit human service organization. People know us um, mostly as raising money and then making investments and funding programs, and that's certainly a a big part of what we do. But it's much more than that. And and actually, what I just described isn't enough anymore. There's a there's a lot of people raising money. You mm -hmm. have to be relevant to um, the needs of the community. And my focus, Mike, you and I known each other a long time and have become good friends, so you know a lot of this, but my, I'm a human service guy. I'm not, I'm not a fundraiser. No. You know, I don't consider myself a professional fundraiser. We do raise money, and we're pretty good at it, yep. and it's important that we do that. But my focus and my lens in which I view my work is always through the human service helping right. lens. That's my background. Yep. So my philosophy has always been let's put ourselves out there as a relevant, important organization that's making a difference in the daily lives of people. And the funds will come as a result mm -hmm. of that. So that's been my strategy all along. Well, we know you're not a fundraiser, and, and I'll tell you how we know that. So every year, our, I think our company has pretty good level of donation from our employees. We we tout the United Way and we try hard to get Top everybody 10 to every year. Yeah, we try we try hard and and so every year somebody from the United Way comes and gives the presentation. And the last time that you came, I think I had three or four people come up to me after and go, "Can you have that woman Kathy come? We didn't <laughs> like John as much." So it's like, all right, from now on, when the United Way guy comes, we don't want Bernardi. We want. Kathy or one of the people from the fundraising team. Yeah, Maybe yeah. they're more engaging or but they have more there, fun there you at go. it. So I'm validating that there yes, fundraising is not your uh, is not your you strong go. suit. I'm not afraid of it. In <laughs> fact, um, you know, there there's uh, I've been able to develop a lot of really wonderful relationships across the region with philanthropists. And um, but again, even when I talk with them, it's always about the impact we sure. can make and not necessarily the art you're of not, the deal. Uh, yes, I think you're right, John. I've never once seen you in a place where I felt like you were trying to sell me something. Right. You're there telling me what you do and if we can help out. And, you know, when we talk to our employees, and, and you know, many of our employees are, are, you know, paid money that puts them in that Alice category. Right. So they don't have a ton of extra money, yet they all want to give something. And, and they want to give something, I think, for a couple reasons. Number one, 
they believe in your organization for a lot of reasons. Number two, they get oftentimes to be part of where that money goes. And so, you know, if you think about me and, and my kind of passion is addiction and mental health and because I've been affected by it, whereas other people might have had hospice that, you know, cared for their dying parent. Um, so people get to choose, kind of mm -hmm. say, look, I want to give to the United Way, but I'd like my money to go and help in this area. I think that's such an important component of it. It is for sure. And, and your, your group is a prime example of um, the relationships that we've built across the region. So if you or one of your people were to call our office, and they do periodically yep. because they need something or mm -hmm. need some help or need some connection with the service, we're going to give you 110% of our yeah. time and effort. It's, it's never taken for granted. Therefore, when campaign time rolls around, you're not hearing from us just once a year because right. we're looking for your money. You're instead thinking, that's a great organization. It's a no-brainer that we're going to support them, and that's, that's my strategy. Yeah. means you're not like a politician. Well, Do we hear from I don't year? think <laughs> I don't think I'm like a politician, but oddly enough, I'm called that a lot. People a politician, say to me, you Bernardi, do. You you're are such a politician. You are pretty. You know schmoozer. what? I'm a schmoozer. You are. Betsy and I remark about it all the time. Like, it's not. It's not possible to say no to Bernardi. If he shows up at my office, I'm like, oh shit, this is going to cost me money or time or something because I can't say no. You're like the Godfather. It's like John Bernardi asks, and you just say yes. So one of the big things that you pushed since for years is this whole idea of Alice mm -hmm. that I don't know a whole lot about. I don't even know where the phrase came from, and I know it means asset limited something. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it means. So let's talk about okay. Alice because I'd like to talk about that, and I think that brings us into the context of recovery because I not, not that everybody who's an addict struggles with poverty, but it certainly is much more prevalent mm -hmm. in the community that is less affluent. So yeah. what does is, what is the whole ALICE mean? ALICE is a wonderful initiative that we launched many years ago. Was that launched here, John? Was that well, here? we were one of the um, first organizations to launch it, but at, at the same time, there were other United Ways in New York State that were doing um, so, but we were on the ground floor of it. In fact, I chair what they call the ALICE Steering Committee statewide, which is a statewide group. Uh, but ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. It's an acronym. Right. What we used to call the working poor. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to say working poor. You know, it's, it's not, um, I don't use it a lot, that term, because even though it's okay, it is what it is. Poverty is what it is. It's, right. You gotta call it what it is, and you have to you have to really um, understand it. You mm -hmm. can't um, you can't sugarcoat poverty. Right. Poverty is poverty. Right. Um, but we used to say the working poor. Um, I don't use that term a lot, be, just because it it has a little bit of a negative connotation, even though it has never been intended to. Alice is another way of looking at it. It actually um, creates a um, new lens in which to view poverty through. And it's really fascinating. We've done extensive data around um, financial instability for mm -hmm. families in our region. And what we determined was there are two ends of poverty in our region. The, the, um, the one end is the federal poverty limit. So on this hand is the federal poverty limit, which is ridiculously 
around um, twelve thousand five hundred for I think an that individual. number is actually lower than the minimum wage, right? The, the, I think the federal poverty level is depending on how many hours you work <laughs> right. it, it for a full-time employee yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. 12 it's yeah. 12 five or so for an individual okay. so Just that's the federal poverty and it's 23,000 for a family of four so that's the poverty limit on this left hand okay over here is what we call the Alice threshold and so our research has determined that an individual in our region would need to make around $23,000 a year just to begin to live independently. That's not high on the hot. I was going to say, when, barely getting by. when you say live independently, a roof over their head, yeah. possibly a car maybe to drive. Without government assistance. Without government, yeah. enough food in their cupboard. And, yeah. Barely. Right. And we also know that um, a family of four would need, well, here in Clinton County, $58,000 wow. a year. Okay, so you got federal poverty limit here at at 125 for an individual and 23,000 for a family of 4 and that's what determines most of the eligibility for assistance then you got the Alice threshold at 23,000 for an individual and 58,000 for a family of 4 so in between those two levels are tens of thousands of families yep. in our region they make a little too much to get most of the government assistance, yep. but not enough to live without fear of going over the financial cliff. Right. So things you and I would take for granted, Mike, like a flat tire or a leaky roof or a broken furnace, to, to us those are pains in the neck. Yep. Those are inconveniences. They might cause us to have to take some time off from work or make some calls or use some credit card that we were trying to phase out or or, or these other nuisances. But they're not going to cause you or I to lose our job, right. become homeless, or have to make a decision whether I get my medication or my groceries. Right. But there are tens of thousands of families in our region that are so close to that financial cliff. And this is despite their efforts to work two and three jobs. Yep. And you know, you've got a lot of good, hardworking yep. people here in this organization. I know it for a fact. Yep. And, uh, and therein I, is the issue. Those people feel like, I'm yeah. busting my ass to yeah. do this. Yeah. And I'm, and I literally am a flat tire away from right. you know losing everything that I have. Right. So Alice shines a light on this mm -hmm. this group of people, um, and is designed to um, create strategies. Um, well, awareness first of all, like you're doing with me, which mm -hmm. is wonderful. Um, but then also strategies to try to um, address some of these concerns. And we we actually have some really good models of programs that have been developed as a result of, of Alice. Um, for example, really quick, we brought back a, a pilot called Wheels to Work. This um, helps people um, either purchase a vehicle or repair a vehicle for work purposes. It has to be tied to employment. Yep. And as you know, transportation is a huge, huge issue, issue in our yep. In our region, the other thing this is really exciting that we're that we're starting with some partners, like uh, similar to the MHAB partnership, um, we've assembled a group of partners and we're starting a um, microfinancing program for Alice families so they can borrow 
a relatively modest amount of money, three to five thousands, up yeah. to ten thousand for vehicles. They need them. Um, could be uh, vital home repairs and other things of that nature. At a uh, and the rate um, that they would need to pay it back is adjusted so that they can work it into their budget. Right. Because a lot of families can't go get a loan. You right. and I, if we need to borrow money, we go to the mm -hmm. bank and sign the paper and you borrow yeah. money. We're very lucky. A lot of families aren't able to do that. Right. So That's great stuff. That, you know, the, the best thing about that is, and I know you well enough to know that shining a light on it is step one, mm -hmm. but then shining a light on it and saying, look what we did, we shined a light on it, doesn't really mean anything right. if you're not actually going the extra mile and saying, okay, now what do we do to, to help here? And I remember I come to you know, every one of your breakfasts and, you know, the dinners for the United Way. And I remember a couple of years ago looking around that room and recognizing that there are people who are in the help field, who are helping people who are less fortunate than them that fall into the Alice category. So here are people who are committing their life to saying, I want to help people who are less fortunate than me. And they're living in that area that one flat tire could could cripple them, and yet they're—it's so noble. Like I, I almost tear up thinking about it. Like my God, we have uh, these people, and it's one of the things that I've always said, John, is we need to not let the really poor and the people who can't work suffer. They—we need to take care of them. But there is that divide when you're trying to get out of there to where you and I are effectively. That ladder is really, really steep. And the help that's there is is limited. You know, I had I've had stories, but I have one particular one of a woman who worked for me, and she wasn't making <clears throat> a lot of money, and she was able to get heap assistance and a few other things, possibly uh, I don't want to call it food stamps, uh, SNAP benefits, yeah. SNAP benefits, um, and we gave her a raise, I think fifty or seventy-five cents an hour. And a couple weeks later, she came back to me and asked me to take the raise back. And I said, "Why would I do that? You earned it. You, you know, you deserve it." And she said, "Well, because it put me over the income level that I can't get help with my fuel oil, but it doesn't give me enough to be able to pay for my own fuel oil." And <clears throat> that's a real story. That's not a. That's not embellished. That's not somebody trying to. That's a. That's a person who is working their ass off trying to get better. And is being told that, okay, well now you're, you know, you've made too much, and and there's no validity to it. She's not making too much money. So, <clears throat> I'm incredibly happy we're doing, uh, you know, we're doing some stuff about that. Yeah. And I know that's been one of your big, one of the big initiatives that the United. I love did. Alice. I'm really yeah. proud of Alice. Um, we got a long yeah. way to go, Mike. Yeah. To your to your point, and I see that all the time. I've had people in my office that you know I've promoted, and they've said thanks for the promotion, but. I'm not sure you realize the hardships that promotion has mm -hmm. created because I just lost three major benefits because right. I just crossed over by a few dollars. Right. And so, yeah. uh, but to your point about people working in the human service field, there are probably the majority of people that work in the human service field are Alice families. And it's um, sometimes they're drawn to that type of work because of their own because they were they've had their own struggles life. sure um, yep and um they're they make excellent workers because they mm -hmm. can relate sure. to people um but the other thing that we're pleased about back to awareness for a minute is um people use the use the lingo a lot um the um 
you mentioned Billy Jones, our good yeah. friend Billy Jones, who we love. Um, we we like to pick on, but what a guy. Um, he uses it all the time. He, he speaks Alice. Right. Um, I've heard the governor speak Alice and the yeah. governor's people speak Alice. Yeah. Um, among human service providers, you hear it more and more. Um, and we've had a number of donors come forward in recent years, some anonymously, yeah. others publicly to say that they love Alice, they love what we're doing, and here's a big check and we want it to go to Alice. So yeah. we've actually created a special fund within our organization. We have our regular campaign and allocation process that is a really great process. And then we've also created this Alice component because donors have asked for it. And this is a fund we manage. We don't allocate those funds out. Right. We manage those funds. So if somebody from the Northeast group, for example, needs something to help them maintain their employment or whatever it might be, we would utilize usually other partner agencies, but we would yeah. find a way to, to help people with these special funds that, that we have. I actually think Kathleen that works for us and kind of does human resources has contacted you guys a few times with some employees. We usually that, hear from her a yeah. um, couple times a month, yeah. which is great. Yeah really great yeah you're a it, it is those are the kinds of things that i don't think we talk about enough we talk about the safety net for the people that are that are way at the bottom right. but those those lower income working poor alice it is it is a really tough place and you know so many of them are trying so hard and it's so easy to become defeated it's like you know i've been kicked around all my life they don't trust the system they don't trust people they don't you know, you have all of these problems. They struggle with substance abuse, mental health, uh, lack of education, whatever. There's a ton of things that go on. And then they get to this place where they have a job and they're working and they're starting to make a little bit of inroads. And then, like you said, the furnace craps out or the car goes down and they're like, well, what's the point? Before, I was better just doing before. And so we're really trying to say, no, there is a point yeah. and there are resources to help. Part of the other thing and, and what Alice has done and, and I think Spark kind of takes this same thing and does it in a more specific way, John, is the whole stigma piece that goes with people. And, and you know, you and I, I think, have been huge advocates of saying we need to eradicate stigma that somehow people who are less fortunate are less people. And I, I think that that's probably where, where you start with this, that just because somebody isn't highly educated or hasn't been able to make it in their life doesn't make them less of an individual that doesn't deserve the same opportunities as everybody else has. And and part of that is the stigma piece. You're right. You know, saying to somebody you're poor as opposed to saying to somebody you're Alice, it makes it different. And it makes it different for those people. You know, the word addict has been kicked around for years. And I, I personally don't mind when people say I'm an addict and mm -hmm. I acknowledge as one, but the, it does have a negative right. connotation for people who don't understand. They look and they go, oh, that guy's an addict. And all of a sudden that says, well, he's this, he's this, he's this, mm -hmm. he's this, or she's this, this, this. So I think stigma is a huge part. And so, so let's stay in Alice a little bit, but let's switch to SPARK as well. So SPARK stands for Substance abuse prevention and recovery, and recovery of, Clinton, of County. Clinton County. Thank you. Of which you were a driving force, I think, in getting it started yeah. here as well as become a chair. Tell me a little about how that started because I didn't get involved till after it had been here for a few years. Well, Spark actually um, emerged, of course, when the when we had the latest round of the heroin and opioid epidemic, and um, 
actually, I got to give some credit to Janet Dupree, our former, former assemblywoman, because she was a big driving force there as well. And she got a group together of um, professionals from this area and, and um, attended some type of a conference or some type of a big meeting in Vermont, if I recall. Mm -hmm. And that was um, this idea of building these regional and community-based coalitions. Um, and uh, Spark emerged from that um, and grew really quickly. You, really were, quickly. you were in on the ground floor. I remember when the first meeting you came to, I remember you actually calling me and saying, what the heck's going on with the Spark thing? I want to come to one of those meetings. I said, come on. And, and, um, and uh, where was that meeting? I, I, remember, I remember you being there. Re oh, West Side Ballroom. West we had Side half Ballroom. of the room. That's right. Yep. Yes, West Side I remember Ballroom. you coming right. in for the first. That's right first time and you yeah. got the floor for a minute yeah. um, and you just wowed everybody with your with your empathy and your understanding of the whole of the whole um, issue um, and anyway the um, the coalition grew very strongly um, we as you know you and I are both on the steering committee mm -hmm. still and we I think we have a meeting this week we, I think it's Thursday yeah Thursday morning right um, but we we acted really quickly again goes back to that that uh, quality we share in this region where we can just get together quickly and dig our heels in and do the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, we're, we're stubborn in that respect in this region. When something is big like that, we're ready to go. But um, we did some really great things. We had, as you know, we had some great events at the Strand, which, um, which really uh, were very useful. And, and we've had... Um, several events and several initiatives that have helped to raise awareness of the issue and bring partners and providers and uh, people together to, um, to figure out how we can support people who are struggling with addiction. And, and, um, and uh, we, we were able to do some really great I things. Re Our work's not done. You know, we're only, we're only um, partway through the journey. Mm -hmm. I remember that first. So I think in the time that I've been on Spark, we've had three three chairs. We had Peter Trout, and Peter's a good friend of mine, but he didn't get anything done. Um, and I can say that. And I'll <laughs> That's tell him, on I'll the tell air. Him, That's fine. I'll tell him to watch the podcast. He'll, he'll expect <laughs> nothing less from me. And then we put the godfather in charge, and all of a sudden things started to flourish. It's like, Bernardi's here. Tell, he tells you to do something. You do that it. That was fun. The first event we put together, I remember it was Christine Peters, you know, spearheaded that event at the Strand. Yeah, and I think yeah. we had like a packed house or pretty close yes. to a packed house yes. at the Strand, um, which is just amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, people came to listen to a presentation about mm -hmm. opiates and substance use and what we're going to do here, which I think is phenomenal. And then we put together a work-related one, which has really been my thing. Right. I remember that first meeting that I went to. We went around and introduced, and there were about 50 people, 50, 60 people at that first meeting, and I was one of the last people to go. And I said, I introduced myself, said who I was, and I, I said, you know, I, I think that we have to recognize that the problem with addiction is not just a problem for you guys that work in the field. We need businesses to be involved in this. I'm the only private business person here. Like, we need to figure out a way to get businesses engaged. And so I took that kind of mantle and ran with it and said, you know, let's get business. And I think we've done some good things around that. And that's all it takes is it takes that little spark. And then, you know, somebody says, this is going to be the area that I focus on. And, and the other piece that we have 
really pushed for. You put together a video, and you, I know you don't like taking credit for it, but the, the Actually, video. Actually, I do. I'm immensely proud of that okay, documentary. Okay, so yeah. John Bernardi put together a video <laughs> that is as good as there is. Okay? <laughs> I know it's good for your ego, um, of which I got to be a part of, and, and that video is phenomenal. And we put that together on the heels of there was a national one called uh, Chasing the Dragon right, right. that we showed. Right. And we went to the schools and showed that as an organization. I th and I think it was good. Um, might have been a little harsh, might have been a little over the right. top for some of the younger, younger students. So we put together a regional video here with uh, people in recovery and professionals, and it is well done. And it's been shown an awful lot of times, and, and I'm immensely proud of it too. I, mean, yeah. I was immensely proud to be a part of it. But um, you know that video is great. And, and in that and in the organization, the whole idea of stigma around these things is something that we've really tried to tried to do. What's your take on stigma with regards to poverty and substance use and mental health? Yeah. How are we doing with regards to that? It's a real challenge. Um, it continues to be a, a real challenge. And in many cases, as you well know, because you've been a real champion of the issue, it becomes a barrier to um, communication sometimes and, and to um, to being able to foster these types of relationships that support people. What it comes down to is empathy. Um, it, it really, um, whether it's substance abuse or mental health or poverty or any number of other challenges that people face, um, it comes down to empathy. Um, it's understanding, in a way, um, what someone else is uh, experiencing and being able to relate to that on some level um, and I can't always relate to two things specifically the way others can if I haven't experienced it firsthand right. but I can still be empathetic I can still take the time to understand what the challenges are and how that affects people and to um, really um, put any judgments aside and and we've made some progress but we're not there yet there's right. there's still a fair amount of that um, stigmatization on uh, and again a variety of different yeah. issues and the part that concerns me um, mostly around that is it, it again it becomes a barrier sometimes yeah. to people getting um, the kind of support that they need and I always say and I mean it um, that you you never know when you yourself are going to need help. Right. So hold off on your judgment right. around somebody else's journey. Right. Because when you least expect it, you turn the next corner, and there you are, right, right there in the middle of something you didn't ever expect, and now you need help, and you don't want to be judged, and you want people to be empathetic toward your experience. It's almost like in the old days when they used to say, be be kind to the people you meet on the way up because you're going to meet the same people on the way down. Like, don't, and, and I don't think they understood that that's what they were trying yeah. to promote, but that is some of it. Like, it's like, you you know, <clears throat> so I got, I received an award last week at the at Clinton Community College for which you didn't attend, and I haven't yet forgiven you for that. But I'm the so, shame. So, I, so, I, so I, it's a good thing I love you so much yeah. and I, you know, forgive you. But, so I received an award, and, and the point of this story is not to talk about the award as much as the room is filled with relatively powerful people mm -hmm. from this community, political business leaders, and it's also filled with people who are friends of mine who struggled with addiction, poverty, all the things we're talking about, and have righted the ship and, and gotten their life to 
and they're mixed in this setting, social speeches, the, the whole thing. And, and I remember standing in the background before I received the award looking, going, I think we've made tremendous progress in normalizing this. I think that, you know, that side of the room that is the people who have been very successful in their life and done great things yeah. is beginning to look at the other side of the room and realize that, that those people aren't all just, um, you know, people who can't make it or are lazy or aren't doing anything. They're people who struggled with some problems. And, and that, to me, was the most heartwarming piece of the mm -hmm. whole event, was mm -hmm. that we're beginning to normalize it. You know, I, I suppose I get some credit for that because I'm pretty public about my own struggles and, and talk about it. And now there's a lot of other people that are willing to do that. And then, you know, you have the Billy Jones of the world and the other people who are saying, wow, these people aren't like separate. You know, I, I told this story and I think I've told it to you before. You know, one of my things, education is important, but education doesn't mean that everybody needs to be a doctor or a lawyer. There are other forms of education. And one of the greatest stories that I ever heard was doctors are important, lawyers are important, so are auto mechanics. And if I'm in, if I break down in the middle of the Adirondacks in the middle of winter and I have a lawyer, a doctor, and an auto mechanic with me, all of a sudden that auto mechanic becomes way more valuable to me than the lawyer and the doctor is. And why can't we get to the point that we don't have to wait for an automobile breakdown to have that happen? Like, why can't we just look at those people and say they are just as valuable? Like, we need everybody, you know, we need the whole world. And, and when we do that, we're a better society. And those people who live in that Alice world or below that Alice world, John, they get to this place where they're above the Alice world. And then when they become above it, they, that's a terrible way to phrase it because I, I just mean when they get out of the Alice world, they're willing to help because they've been there. They recognize that I lived in that. And there were great people like John Bernardi and his team or others that helped me when I was there. I want to make sure that I that I do that. Like mm -hmm. I, you know what it's I mean? infectious for sure. I think yeah. the struggle piece makes, makes such a huge component yeah. of it. The other thing that you do, and I've always been impressed by this, is you run an organization that actually has a pretty wide reach with how many employees? Well, four right now, as many as eight four. fluctuates from four I mean, eight. that is really Yeah, it's small. We're a small when, when organization. When you think about what you guys do up there, yeah. it is, uh, I'm incredibly impressed. I listen to, you know, Kathy Snow, who I think is your, your right-hand person, and she's I mean, she's up at five in the morning traveling all over the North Country to make presentations, and it really is impressive that yeah. with such a small organization you do that. Now, I know you have a board, and you have a... A, a lot of volunteers that, that support our work as well. And you have the Allocation Committee, right? Correct. So tell me a little... I've always been intrigued by that. Tell yeah, me what the, the Allocation Committee, committee is a it. great group. Um, it's chaired by Vicki Marking, who who um, is with Layer 8 now. Right. I know, um, I keep thinking Pride Blake, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's Layer, Layer 8. Layer 8, um, and Vicki's been on our board for, for a long time, um, and uh, 10 other community members, mm -hmm. and they look at our investments um, in the community, our allocation of funds in the community, and they um, really scrutinize applications and agencies to make sure that, that, that um, our funds are gonna be used to the best um, effectiveness, um, and um, then they re make a recommendation to the board. So, so they typically meet in, in the spring, early spring, late winter for um, six weeks or so, but it's very intense, yeah. um, very intense. Um, 
and they're just a great group that really, um, again, make sure that we're accountable to our supporters and that we're making investments that are truly making a difference. And, and, that's, and that's really important. Our donors mm -hmm. expect that. So the allocation, pro I'm very proud of our allocation yeah. process. So when I'm out raising money or talking to people about the work we do, I can speak from a r very confident and proud um, perspective on what we do because we're very good stewards of community mm -hmm resources. I mentioned this other um, the, this other Alice fund that we've created and, and uh, we were approached by um, a large foundation last um, last year during the pandemic who said uh, and they're based in Syracuse but they wanted to make a difference um, in this region and they approached us and, and said we love your Alice program and um, we want to make a large investment and we want you to manage it to make sure that it's used to help Alice families in, in the region. So it was $255,000 wow. last year and they just gave us another one twenty-seven five for this year. And so we're able to do all of these creative, unique things with that. And, and some are very basic. Um, could be car repairs for an individual family. Mm -hmm could be um, scholarship funds so Alice families can send their kids to Camp Jericho. Wow. Things of that, you know, so, and all sorts of things in between. One, so One of the other things that you've always done for us, so we do a, at our very small company with, you know, 50 employees, we do a 50-50 raffle every Friday. And that 50-50 raffle, 50% 50 goes to the winner, although probably half the time the winner just puts the money back in the right. till. And the other 50% goes to what we call the Kids Fund. Mm -hmm. And at Christmas every year, oh, I we, love this uh, program. we take that money. And it's usually two, $3,000 yeah. that we've raised. And uh, we go to you and we say, and you know me, so you know what I'm looking for. You know, I don't. I love helping people, but I love helping people that are in that Alice category, that are trying hard, single moms, single dads, working two jobs, trying to get an education, trying to do that, raise their kids, and can't have Christmas for their kids. And you send us families, usually there's you know three, four, six families, whatever it is, and we get lists of all the kids, uh, what the kids want for Christmas, what was on their Christmas list. And our employees actually take that money and take one kid or two kids or whatever and the employees actually go out and shop for that and then uh, we buy all the gifts that we can you know and and we have a big wrapping party in the conference room and we wrap the gifts and then we sometimes I do it sometimes Pete does it who kind of oversees this we get to bring them up to you and you disperse them to the families it's amazing what I tell everybody about that John on I say at that last meeting before we all break for Christmas, I say, on Christmas morning, I hope you all get up and enjoy your time with your family and do whatever it is that you do. But I hope that you take two or three minutes and step back and think that there are kids opening gifts today that wouldn't have had Christmas because of this small contribution that you make and our relationship with the United Way who help us. And it, it brings tears to my eyes every Christmas morning, thinking that some kid who lives in a less fortunate family. and. The parent doesn't have to be embarrassed by thinking that it was given by somebody else. Like they, this, it just really is a great, it's a great story. And you've been such a great partner in that, giving us great families. We so love we're incredibly that program. Appreciative. It's the, it's like the highlight of our yeah. year. We just enjoy doing that yeah. so much. And you and your people have just been incredible. And 
we're not talking about just your run-of-the-mill basic Christmas gifts for people. I mean, they really go all out. They do. They make it so special. Yeah. And um, the the gratitude that these families have expressed yeah. over the over the years is just incredible. Because we really scrutinize to make sure that we're getting. Because unfortunately, Mike, there are people sure. who take advantage of these type yep. of things. So they'll go to the Christmas bureau, then mm. they'll go to JC, <laughs> right, and they'll right. go to you know wherever they can. Just um, and they sometimes they need it, sometimes they don't really need right. it. So we want to be extremely. Right careful um, in choosing the families for you because you've entrusted us with this so that we're making sure that these are good hard-working families who are humble and who are truly like well i'll tell you the tribute to that john is that one year i think we bought one of the one of the families it was a single mom and she worked two jobs, went to school at Clinton, had three kids. I mean, really just busting yeah. her ass, trying to make it right. And I think we gave her a $200 gift card, uh, maybe stop and shop or some, something like that. And I think she returned it to you. And she said, I, I, don't, I only wanted it for my kids. And, and you, that's what you, you go, those are the people we should be helping. Like this is exactly. a noble, honorable person who's just trying to make ends meet. It's great. It's just great yeah. stuff. So what's on John Bernardi's horizon? <laughs> you mean this afternoon or 10 uh, years from know, now? Kind of, that's a where, wide where's swath. Bernardi, where's Bernardi? So here's what I know about you. No matter where you are, you're going to be skiing. Well, yes. So that's I skied thing. right up until April 24th, Of course you Mike. did. Of course you did. Karen and I were at Jay Peak <laughs> on their last day. Prior to that, I was at Sugarbush. This is after Whiteface closed. Yeah, yeah. We went to Sugarbush, had a great day there. Um, that was the 18th of April. Then, then we were at Jay on the 24th of April. So, yeah, of course I'm going to You know ski. what's great about you? What I do. You're like an expert skier. You can go ski anywhere you want to. But if I go with you, you're good enough to just hang out on the little blue trails and the baby trails so I don't get hurt. Although you do try to egg me on to go to the places <laughs> where I could take a really bad spill. No. So I'm like, you know, I have to be conscious yeah. of that. You know, skiing for me is... Um, um, I'm 55. I'll be 55 this month, so I'm not a kid anymore. So I I try to be a little more careful. But skiing um, is is a a lot a lot of things to me, um, and it's the camaraderie part of it is a big part of it. So you and I on the chairlift, yeah. spending the day together, having conversations, yeah. laughing, picking on each other, yeah. spending quality time in a, some beautiful setting. Is to me that's every bit as important as the actual skiing, maybe right. more so. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's just a part of my life that is um, really multifaceted. It's yeah. it's it's a little bit about the actual skiing. It's more about the lifestyle and the, and similar to golf. I, I mean, you're an say, avid golfer. Very so similar. There's to a lot golf. of similarities there. I never got bit by the golf bug. Yeah. But I know enough about it to know that there are similarities. You're there. right. The fun in, in golfing is really the camaraderie that's yeah. out there, not the, you know, I mean, golfing's part of it and you like to play and all that, but it is. You're out there for four yeah. or five hours with people that you like and enjoy and you're having fun and having some laughs and sometimes talking about some serious stuff. So Yeah, it's and it's the fun. gear and yeah. it's the, you know, yeah. it's, the, it's the fresh air and the, you know, the scenery. It's, it's all of these all of these things you got your you got your indoor golf got my center simulator here so you know, i, I got my winter. own little ski shop <laughs> at the of course, house. Of course so you, you know same 
same idea, but um, what's on my horizon? Well, um, uh, you never know what's around the next corner. Um, I have no um, plans or intentions of changing jobs. Um, I enjoy it a great deal, and, and there's more work to be done, and um, it's still fun. Uh, but who knows? I mean, you never know what's around yeah. the corner. I don't ever see myself working in a different field. Right. It's, you know, it's all I've ever done. Yeah, it's all is, I know. You know, you're a natural in this uh, in this field. Well, I appreciate that. It's um, it's it's um, it's been rewarding. It's been, you know, I haven't gained a tremendous amount of monetary wealth in my life <laughs> as a result. But I'm not complaining. Great life, and I make a comfortable living. So I'm not, that wasn't a complaint, but you know, friends of mine have gone a different route and and made millions, yep. um, and you know, I never wanted that. In fact, I was. Um, don't get me wrong; I like nice things. Sure, I like a yeah, good yeah. life. Um, appreciate that very much. But I was um, with a friend of mine who went a very different route, a childhood friend of mine, and he went into commercial banking and and made millions. Yep. Um, and he's retired completely now. He's my age. Um, and we were talking one day, and he was, you know, and he was, um, I don't know if bragging's the right word about all this wealth he's built up and all these vacations and all these things he's done, you know, and big house and, you know, Jersey and all this and that and the other thing. And, you know, I just listened to it. And then, you know, he, um, he spent some time with our family, so he knows our life too. And mm -hmm. at the end of it, he said, you know what? I think I'd trade everything I ever had for the life you have. Yep. And I said, I wouldn't trade a thing for your life. You yeah. Because, you know, he was telling me, I've never, he said, I barely ever went to any of my kids' things at yeah. school. And I said, Matt, his friend's Matt, um, his name's Matt, friend of mine. I said, Matt, I never missed one of them. Right. I, I never missed a one of them. Um, and, you know, this list of complaints and regrets. And I said, take your 10 million bucks mm -hmm. then keep it. Yeah. I don't want it because you know it's, you can't judge the value of your life by the size of your checkbook. It's funny you say that, John. I, I live, you know, I, I'm a guy who, and I, I don't have any regrets in my life. I'm 57 years old, John. I'm incredibly happy, happily married. I love the business that I have. I love the people that I work with. I love the life I have in recovery. I love my friends. I love all that stuff. And everything that happened in my life happened to get me to this point sure. at 57 so I don't necessarily regret that and I'm I'm more like you John I have I've had some material success our business is flourishing we've done okay and I wouldn't categorize myself as wealthy but certainly I've, I've done okay I live a, I live a good life and you know what I was talking to my wife who you know very well uh, a few years ago and she, we both acknowledged that we might actually be less happy or less satisfied then than we were 15 years ago when it was not a struggle, but right. it was, it, it didn't matter so much. Like right. there really is something to that. And you know, one of the things we said is that we're not gonna be worried about buying new homes or doing any of that. We're gonna be worried about spending our life having experiences because those are what really matter. And you know, you liken it to the, the whole funeral thing. You know, if you go to a funeral, and you listen to somebody eulogize somebody, nobody ever says, well, he had nine homes and he spent, they say, 
I remember the time I got to go fishing with him and we caught a big fish and somebody fell out of the boat and it was hysterical. That's the stuff that people talk about because that's the stuff that matters. You know, I've, right. I've had this conversation with my father multiple times. I, you know, two years ago, my father's got a couple of jet skis. He lives on the lake and we're out playing on the jet skis. Might have even been last year. And uh, we went over by the, the head of the river, the mouth of the river. Didn't realize how shallow it was in there. So we ran one of the jet skis. Let me say this so if my father watches it, I ran my jet ski aground. He did not. Got a rock up in the propeller. Ooh, so, wow. I, you know, he shut it. Been there. So he had this slow trip back to his house. And, and it's like, that's the stuff that I remember. Like, that's the stuff. That's the day, the story that I remember. And, and so we, we spend our life trying to have experiences as opposed to trying to make sure that my home is as big as the next guy or my car is as nice as the next guy. And I'm like you, not that nice things aren't cool. Like, I like having a good set of golf clubs, and yeah. a, you know, but that's not what drives me, never has been. And it's not what drives you. And, and probably that's why guys like you and I have been able to be good friends because it's not, you know, those things don't, don't drive us. Are you still in the same house? Still in the same. Okay, you know, but I'll tell you a, a quick story about this. Because I thought at one point you were We've thinking about making a we move. Put, we put, I think, five offers in on homes in this area oh, that we wanted to buy. Yeah. Couldn't get any yeah. one of them, including the last one that we put in. Like the second day it was on the market, we put an offer in for, I think, $2,000 more than they were asking for. Yeah. And it got, somebody gave them more than that. Yeah. So we've become a bit discouraged by the whole thing. Um, you know, we're still looking. Our house is fine. It works for us. We don't need, you know, we're, lux we're that's a luxury problem for us. We're not in that Alice place where we have a perfectly comfortable, fine home that we can live in. We'd like one that's a bit more modern and, and all that. But if it doesn't happen for a year or two, you know, that's okay. And, and when Lizzie and I were getting discouraged about it, that's one of the things we said. We said, you know what, think about it. We're discouraged because we didn't get the home that we thought we wanted. We have this perfect home with two dogs and cars and a pool. And we're like, think about people who their decision isn't which home they're going to. It's do I eat tonight or do I go get my medication? And when you can always keep that in perspective, you really do look at things as luxury problems. This is a luxury problem for me. It's not a real problem. Like no, I do. I, I um, you know? for whatever reason. I've always been um, able to appreciate the smaller things, mm -hmm. the finer things, the the the, um, the the things in life that really matter, and and be grateful for those things. Yeah. So, you know, I I grew up in sort of a middle class suburban. Yeah. My father was a lawyer. He he died young. He was forty seven. I was twelve. So yeah. you know, I certainly missed him for a good part of my life but he provided a pretty nice life for us right. and so I've I've not lived in poverty right. Mike I've never lived in poverty yeah. um and um uh but my I think through my work I've um just developed an appreciation mm -hmm. for I guess just being grateful that I have a good life and yeah. I don't need a Cadillac and I don't right. need that a mansion Right. I, this is great. What yeah. I got is great, and I every day I wake up and I'm grateful yeah. for it. So I'm I'm lucky in that respect because some people chase their tail their whole oh, life. Yeah. They're always looking for something right. that um, is more than what they have without taking the time to appreciate what they have. I know people. You know people. Friends yeah. of ours. You yeah. know we know people that that are always 
I call them malcontents. No matter what is happening in their life, they're always chasing something they need something else. more. And I'm like, this is it. I mean, most days I'm like, this is what I want. I'm you remember living my dream. You remember Reader's Digest used to have those little quotable quotes. They used to have quotes yeah. in their magazine. One of the ones that I read years ago was, genuine happiness is wanting what you have, not having what you want. And, you know, that has always stuck with me. That That's right. Genuine happiness right. is wanting what I have, not having what I Because I can always want more, and it doesn't matter what I get. There's always going to be the next that's shiny right. object. And, right. and you're right. And, you know, when I spoke at the college the other night at the event you didn't come to, um, what, what, that's, <laughs> plus a third time on our way in. That's that's actually, <laughs> it'll take me a week or so to get over it, but I'll, I'll be good in a week or two. But I, I said, uh, actually, it was the next day when they gave me the honorary degree. I said, you know, I try to live my life by three kind of words every day, and you know, honesty, humility, and gratitude. And if I have those three things every day. I'm going to be okay. Like, I'm going to live an, uh, an okay life. And, and they're not all that hard. It's like, it's pretty easy to be honest. It's, it's pretty easy to have some humility. And it's easy, if I focus on it, to be grateful for yeah. what I have. And, and, and I have a lot. And so do you. And I, and I know that you're grateful. Absolutely. That's words, cool. Those are words to live by. Mm. For do you sure. have anything you want to add before we kick you out of here? And well, congratulations to you, Mike, Thank for you. Um, and 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 I'm and I'm immensely proud that you credit me as one of the guys who pulled you out of the shadows. Because if I pulled you out of the shadows mm. and you have shined your light as a result of that, you have mm. brightened this world that we live Thank in. Thank you. Um, and you know, I've just I've seen some of the things you've done, been part of some of the things you've you've done and, and it's really impressive and um, is so important to helping not only people understand what some of these issues are but also create solutions and strategies for addressing them you know MHAB is just a phenomenal mm -hmm. um, a phenomenal campus and a phenomenal concept and something we really needed in this yeah. region and all of your work around recovery and mental health and, and um, community engagement. And the other thing I want to mention, you and Betsy and your colleagues deserve a tremendous amount of credit, back to Alice for a second, is that um, one of the important components of Alice is to, again, shine this light on, but to encourage employers to understand what it is. Right. And to, um, to create an environment uh, within their company that um, provides a, again an environment that um, that Alice folks can can thrive in and survive um, and um, have a uh, uh, be able to build that kind of life we're talking about yep. and there's some good examples of it but none better than your organization Thank you. none better and I use it all the time I said to people when we talk about this I say well the Northeast group they got it down here's what they do and here's why that is the type of environment there's other examples sure. but most of have uh, most of those have developed as a result of what you've done you know there's a few good ones mold writing mold is one that I've seen really really grow they in are. terms of understanding the concept and they used a lot of the things you started um, Eric and I, Eric Zeisloft, who runs Moldrite, and I have yeah. tremendous conversations about that. And he, you know, and he, and he's kind of funny, John, because he's like you. You know, he was brought up, 
not well off, but he, he never really struggled with, you know, but he, he has an understanding and an appreciation and really values yes. wanting to help, yes. um, you know, which is great because he doesn't have the personal experience, but he really has jumped on board. And you're right. They are, they are my other kind of shining example of somebody. Yeah. Um, and I will tell you the two premier employment agencies here, ETS and Coyer, have both also jumped on board. Oh, they have really been, uh, really take the time when people come in to interview to understand what their problems are and things like that. And when they're trying to place the uh, potential employee, you know, take the time to talk to the employer about, okay, so this person is on drug court or this person has this or this person has that. So you're right, we, we're making inroads with people mm -hmm. to begin to, you know, start to change that a little bit. Yeah, I think. Deb, Corey, uh, Deb Cleary, Cleary from yeah. um, ETS is a, is a big supporter of yeah. Alice and, and David Corey. Yeah is yeah. on my board and yeah. is also a big supporter. Yeah. And you're right, both agencies are very, um, very empathetic. Yeah. Incredibly helpful issues. with the MHAB people. We send MHAB people to either one of those places and they go out of their way to try to find a good home and, and to help the people and really, yeah. So you're right, and that's more of that whole community thing, John. We just are so, so blessed in this community to have mm -hmm. uh, the kind of people that we have running the organizations that are, that are involved in this. Mm -hmm. So will you come back and visit me again? Of course. Maybe we'll even have Betsy here. Well, you know, it would, it would um, jazz things up a little bit if you had Betsy here, right? Well, she irritates me most of the time, but I love her, but she irritates yeah, you me. You two have this really interesting, like, sibling type of relationship where you get under each other's skin all the yeah. time, but you can't live without each other. Her granddaughter listens to the podcast and always asks her every time she listens to it, yeah, yeah, why does Uncle Mike talk over you all the time? <laughs> it's like, well, because that's what happens, because that's our relationship. Well, you and so, Betsy have this oh, ongoing competition yeah. of who can talk over who. I usually win. You usually win. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, yeah, yeah. you're one of the few that can talk <laughs> one over Betsy. One of the few Betsy. that can talk over Betsy, that's right. could so, tell her I said I'm good. Well, she'll see it <laughs> firsthand when she sees this. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things we wanted to do on this when we started is, you know, we have guys like you that are so instrumental, and you come back regularly, you know, once a year or whatever, and just update us and make sure that we're making progress. Because I think one of the things that podcasts do, on top of allowing me to sit in front of a camera and talk, which I just love to do, they, they do allow us to hold ourselves accountable to make sure that we're doing the stuff that we're saying we're doing. You know, it's easy to get up and give a speech. It's easy to, you know, present all this stuff. The hard part is, are you doing the work behind that and making sure that we're, we're, we're doing that? And I think we do a relatively good job of that. Um, but this is just another way to say, okay, so look, John was here a year ago and he talked about this and now we've added this as a new program or we're doing this or, you know, the financial piece that you're doing to help people that are Alice, I think yeah. is fabulous. I think that, you know, those types of things are just terrific. And I will tell you the other thing that we need to focus on, and it's, I'm going to have a hard time saying this because I don't have kids and I'm not sure I even like kids, but the whole daycare issue is such a huge problem. And the pandemic really brought to light how big a problem that was when kids couldn't go to school and couldn't go to daycare. And parents are now trying to figure out how do I go to work and still take care of my kids when I can't send them to an overpriced daycare. I mean, it really is a, and I'm sure you see that in the Alice place. Well, um, speaking of, of the pandemic, um, we, um, when, so a year ago, more than a year ago, last March, um, when things really changed in this 
in this region. And I was actually skiing that day that our world changed. I was at Whiteface. It was um, the 18th. Is that what it was? March yeah, it was 18th. The 18th I think. of March. March and yeah. I was at. Yeah. It was a Sunday. Yeah. Um, 17th, 18th of March, whatever yeah. it was. I was at Whiteface in the morning with Karen. We had a great morning. Um, and we were home by, I don't know, about 11, 11 and, or 12 or so. And um, first thing that happened was I got a text from somebody who was still at the mountain and said, John, they're closing for the season. And I said, how could that be? I just left there. Everything mm -hmm. was great. They announced they're closing for the season. Um, and then my phone started lighting up um, that Sunday afternoon. It was Mark Davey, it was Billy Jones, and a number of other people. And the, what happened was that that Sunday afternoon is when it became well known that the schools were going to close right. and our world was going to change. Um, and so you speak of relevance. Um, we, you know, we made a conscious decision at the time that we're going we're gonna to throw ourselves in harm's way and become one of those organizations that's out there in the forefront of dealing with the issues that need to be dealt with. And so um, uh, we never closed, not mm -hmm. for a day. Um, to this day, we have never closed. Mm -hmm. um, and we were one of the first, we were the first nonprofit in the region that got um, deemed an essential business. And it was actually at the request of the governor's people who, who contacted me and said, would you be willing to stay open because we need a nonprofit that will make sure that there's this network of, I said, I never was going to close. Right. You don't have to ask right. me to stay right. open. Um, and so we got the first essential um, nonprofit business um, uh, delineation. Um, and um, we, um, I'm proud of the work we did. But there were, child care was a major concern right from the get-go. Transportation was the other, and food insecurity was, those were the big three um, last spring. Um, and we've addressed a lot of those, although child care is still an issue. They're all still issues. What's become um, sort of an emerging issue in, in recent months is housing. Um, yeah. And uh, not only availability, but um, uh for um, uh, homeless, um, risk of homelessness, like rental assistance, mortgage assistance, back taxes. Um, because what happened, Mike, this is interesting, yeah. is last spring the governor, of course, announced that um, people would be um, forgiven, he meant temporarily, for their rent last March, April, May, and June, right? But I knew what yep. that meant. That yep. meant that people are still going to have to pay that rent. Right. Landlords across the region cannot be expected to cover their tenants' rents for six months. Right. Um, but it wasn't clear what the communication right. was. So Alice families thought they were in the clear right. for rent for April, March, April, May, June, and when it, through the summer, actually. Yeah. But I knew, well, in the fall, this is going to become a crisis because they're not forgiven. Right. Landlords still got to get paid, and rightfully so. Right. So what's happened is that crisis has exacerbated um, and um, uh, increased in intensity, and now people are behind by tens of thousands of dollars yep. in some cases yep. with their mortgage or their rent, right. and so they're they're facing all these challenges. So housing's become a major issue for you know, for that Alice was, family. 
that was the big landlord issue. The big landlord issue was, look, it's all well and good if the governor wants to say we're going to you know, give a moratorium on paying rent, but he also should be saying where that's going to come from. And you know, I think that they, they made a colossal mistake in the, the way that they gave out stimulus money and the way that they added extra unemployment and didn't make it mandatory that you had to pay rent or necessities right. with that first. Right. And uh, you know, that was probably flawed logic because you're right, now when, when the courts open back up, you're gonna begin to see all these lawsuits and landlords evicting people. And, and rightfully so, when you know, if the government's giving you subsidies to help you and you're choosing to say, he also told me I don't have to pay my rent, that, you know, that's not probably the right way that it should have been done. And so you're right, the, the, we're heading in a place that uh, you know, could get bad for a while. And the pandemic create that's just one example yeah. of the confusion yeah. that the pan, even now there's yeah. great confusion yeah. around CDC guidelines. Yeah. Should we wear a mask? Yeah. We don't have to We're wear a mask. To do one. We, yeah. well, one of the things I've been doing and spending a lot of time with lately, Mike, is around the vaccine process. Yeah. Um, as you probably know, um, we have a, a, we're the northern region, so it's seven counties mm. called a vaccine hub. And CVPH is the is the um, hub of that vaccine network, and so their job is to coordinate the vaccination process. Seven counties, so all mm. the way to Watertown and yeah. back and south to Lewis County. Um, it's a huge region, and they called upon me to to um, chair this task force called the Health Equity Task yep. Force, and what what that is focused on is making sure that there is equitable access for Alice families, right. homeless people, disabled people, elderly people, BIPOC communities, um, uh, migrant farm workers, mm. Amish, yep. um, and so um, groups that may be underserved or hard to serve um, and hard to reach. Um, and I've really loved this work. Yeah. Um, it's been fascinating fascinating work. Did I, I might have actually even called you when the, when the, or maybe I called Rochelle because I think Rochelle's also on that. She's part of the Health of Equity that, right? Task Force, yeah. So when they opened the drive-through vaccine site over yes. here, thought it was a great idea. That's where I got my vaccines. I think they're efficient. They did a great job. Oh, yeah. They were very Absolutely. Helpful. But I remember, I think it was probably Rochelle I called and I said, okay, so we're talking about how poor people, you know, Alice people, whatever, are struggling to get vaccinated but we put a drive-through only vaccine site. I got 100 residents at MHAB, four of them I think at the time, maybe six, have cars. What are they gonna do about vaccines? So we asked people that live in MHAB, 90 or 100 residents, how many of them would be willing to be vaccinated, and I think we had 10 or 11 that agreed. Then the hospital, we got in touch with the hospital, and the hospital agreed to come over and do an on-site vaccination. So we went back to the people and asked how many were willing to get vaccinated, and I think we had 58 people yeah. that were willing to get vaccinated. And so that's just a, a perfect example of when we made it easy for people to do this, they were more than willing to do it. But yeah. when it was hard and challenging and they didn't know how they were going to do it, they're just like, well, whatever, I'm not going to bother with that. And sometimes I think those of us that are in positions of responsibility forget that, that, that the person who you're trying to help who's sitting at the bottom already feels like society has shit on them for a long time. Whether it's right or wrong, mm -hmm. that's how they feel. Mm -hmm. And whether society has or hasn't, that's how they feel. And every time you put up, you use the word, every time you put up another barrier for them, it just further ingrains in them that, see, nobody, they don't care. They don't care about us. They don't, they, they token talk about us. And 
when you can do things that show that that's not what we're doing. And I think that's what we tried. That's when you begin to see people flourish and prosper and, and begin to get out of that position of, of generalized poverty and, and a lifestyle that just doesn't allow them to have, you know, my statement is their version of the American dream, like whatever their version. And it's funny that you and I talked about, you know, you talked about your friend Matt and all the money he had and yours and, you know, you and I are similar. Like, I'm not trying to push on people who are less fortunate than me what they should do with their life. I'm just trying to push on them that you should determine what you want your life to be and then you should go have that. And it, it can be, we live in this great world and great country that gives us this opportunity. Like you have opportunity to go and be and do yeah. whatever it is that you think is valuable to right. you. That like, And we're here trying to help you get there. That's what we're trying to do. So. Right. It's great stuff. What you do up there is great stuff, and your team is fabulous. And thank you. Know, you. Your golf tournament is even a decent golf tournament. Well, so we're we we're looking forward to having yeah, you there. We have a lot of fun next in the golf month. Hope we get a nice day like today we out will. there. And I'm suspecting that next year we'll be back to normal. I think so. I hope so. Yeah. yeah, we're we're definitely getting there. I would encourage people to get the vaccine if they haven't. Yeah. Um, and again, our work is focused around making yeah. sure that people can access it if they want it yep. and um, uh, we're making some progress but it's really important um, and will help us get back to normal yeah you, do you know John you know and you and I, I think lean somewhat the same way in some of our beliefs about the world but I, I wasn't necessarily enamored with getting the vaccine I was a little reluctant at first mm -hmm. uh, and I talked to people that were in the field and, and listened to what they said and and uh, you know I was okay with doing it um, but for me, it was even more that I want my life back. I want to be able to go and live, and I want to go to a hockey game. I want to go to a movie. I want to go to a place. And if the way to that is through the vaccine, then I'm willing to do it, you know, it, selfishly, because I want to be able to go back to living just like I was living before. I want to ski. I want to play golf. Yeah. I want, you know, without having all of these restrictions placed on me. That's how I try to promote the vaccine. Forget about what you – and the second piece is – I don't necessarily trust the government. I think you and I have had those conversations before, but I find it hard. Except to, for Billy, Joe. Except for Billy, we do we do yes, like go we on do record. Like, we do like Billy. Yes, we we do like <laughs> Billy sometimes, um, but they wouldn't have put a vaccine out to try to vaccinate 300 million people if it really was going to be detrimental to right. your health. It's right. it's not practical. It wouldn't make good sense. Right. So I do believe that it's safe as safe as they can probably make it at this point and, and so I was happy to get it and I had probably the same adverse effects that a lot of people do the second shot kind of knocked me out for you know about 36 hours um, but I've not had any other reaction or feeling to it and it it does you feel a little bulletproof a little more like I'm you know I feel comfortable going well out you know somewhere. I tell people and I'm not a medical professional so I'm yeah. just doing my job as the chair of the health equity task force not trying to be a medical professional but this is my personal belief that the any risk that the vaccine would create which is so minuscule yeah. um, is a much better risk to take than the potential long-term effects of becoming infected right. with COVID-19 yeah. um, you know for me I'll take the vaccine any yeah. chance on the vaccine yeah easy decision for me yeah. personally because yeah. I'm not a big vaccine guy either right. but you know when it came down to yeah. okay you can get it I'm like I'll take you know I'm thinking I'd read I'll take my chances on a vaccine because I know people that 
have young people in their 30s who are, they call long haulers. Yeah. Who just can't, can't get, over get over this it. thing? Yeah. Neurological yeah. issues. I said, I'll, yeah. I'm not. I don't want to take. I that don't want to have that. I don't yeah. want to. And you know, it's it's. Look, the pandemic is the pandemic. It's a serious virus, killed a lot of people. I I made a commitment to myself back when this first happened that I wasn't gonna that I was gonna cut everybody slack for the way they believe, the way they react, and this is tough for everybody. People have beliefs. People have. It, this has been a really tough year for yes. everybody, and, yes. and we shouldn't shame people who got it. We shouldn't shame people who are refusing to get the vaccine. We should yeah. try to talk to them about why we think it's good. But this is this has been hard on everybody for a variety of different reasons. I finally got to go see my mother in the nursing home, you know, a month ago, and for a year we haven't been able to see my mother. And I, and you think about it and go, I understand why, but I often say this, John, that you know, if you were to ask my mother a year ago. You can see your kids whenever you want to, but there's a chance you could get COVID and die. Or you can't see your kids or anybody for a year and you're not gonna get COVID, but you could die in that year from some other reason because you're 85 years old anyway, which would you want? I'm pretty sure that most of those people would say, I want my family here and I'll take the risk of, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's And I'm not faulting the nursing homes for what they did or anybody, but it just, it's been such a tough year for all of us. And I'm so happy to be kind of getting out of it. Mm -hmm. So. And you and I could probably sit here and talk for three hours, John, because I genuinely like you. And, well, you know, you're all right. that's high praise then, you Mike, know, because you're all right. yeah. but if I'm on that list, if I'm on your good list, what well, more fallen, could I possibly you've fallen want? One, you've fallen one wrong. Yeah. Yeah, because of the college thing. But, oh. but you're, you've, you've only fought. That's three. Is that three oh, or four? That's, that's, that's four or you five. You got me now. once on the way in and four times here. So so thank you for coming today. I really do appreciate it. And uh, This has been fun. It's always great to spend time with you, and you're, you're one of my favorite people. Well, thank you for that. I and consider you a, a close friend and a valued confidant and a and it, uh, just a wonderful guy that I love being around. So I'm happy to be here. Well, I appreciate that. And we're going to put you on. And next year we'll do it when, when Betsy's here so you can get a little fun with both Well, you know, Betsy and I, I'm her. the chair of the hospital, hospital board. She's, she's the vice chair, right. so she's coming in. Right. And uh, so I see Betsy a lot. I know you and do. And so she's, she's and a firecracker. And you're Rotarians. And like you Rotarians. are, the, you and Betsy are the true, the true meaning of elitist in Platt. You do fit the, fit the you bill. You said true, I was humble. True elitist in Blatchburg. That's what I think yeah. of when I think of you. But so thanks. Thanks a bunch for coming, and yep. we're going to have you back. So listen, a couple things before we wrap up. No caustic sweatshirt this week. I have the Islander sweatshirt on because the playoffs just started. So by the time this airs, I could be a Stanley Cup champion, or at least my team could be a Stanley Cup champion by then. So I wanted to wear something that was appropriate. So I didn't, uh, I didn't get the caustic one, but I have some more caustic ones going. Um, secondly, I think I made a commitment to do a quote every week, right? Did I do? Did I say that last week? I didn't have one, did I? So I have a good quote. Okay, it's about change. If you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. Think about that going forward. We don't have a closing statement anymore either, do we? Because we're not using COVID out anymore. So thank you for coming. Betsy won't be back next week. So you got two podcasts without Betsy making my day. Um, and we will be talking to Bryn and Telly next week about behind the scenes recovery podcast and 
Thanks again to our guest, Mr. John Bernardi, the godfather of Plattsburgh, New York. Thanks for having me, Mike. I enjoyed it. Thank you, folks. See you next week. Thanks for joining us today at Recovery Uncovered. No matter where you are in your recovery journey, or if you're supporting the recovery journey of a loved one, just know today is the first day of the rest of your life. Visit our website at mhab.org. And if you want to become an old timer in recovery, don't use and don't die. This has been Recovery Uncovered.